Well, we continue this morning in our walk through second, uh, sorry, first and second Kings, which I say walk through, but it really feels more like a hop, a skip, and a jump through. And the reason it is that way is our, most of our church is going through a Bible reading plan this year. And it is taking us now through first and second Kings at a rate of seven chapters each week. And so I'm just choosing one story from those seven chapters each week. So as you're reading along, I'm preaching along as well. This should take us through about Thanksgiving. And first and second Kings join together to tell us the story of Israel's fall from their golden age under Solomon all the way to the terrors of deportation under the Babylonian exile. Someone living in that hard day or in the hard day that came after it would ask with a tear in their eye, how did we get here? How did it get this bad? And First and Second Kings tells the story of how things got that bad. Now, when we last left off, the golden age came to an end. Solomon had ruled in might and power and wisdom, and there was gold everywhere, and everything was going great. The people, it said, ate and drank and were happy. But Solomon brought an end to that when he turned away from the Lord, and he worshipped idols. His wives, wives turned his heart away, and he worshipped idols. The Lord came to him and said, because you have done this, I will tear much of the kingdom from your son after you. Many lessons there. What happens next is Solomon indeed dies, his son reigns after him, and very early in his son's reign, the Lord's prophecy comes true. The Lord tears most of the kingdom from Solomon's son, and Israel is split into two kingdoms for the rest of her history until the exile. In the south, we have Judah, who is ruled by a descendant of David, so still part of David's dynasty, still one of Solomon's sons reigning on that smaller throne in Judah. And in the north, we have the larger kingdom of Israel. Most of the other tribes had followed the other king. And in Israel, through the generations, we have all sorts of turmoil with the throne. Somebody fights a war and steals it from this guy, and he takes it from that guy, and he dies, and his son takes over and lives only for a week, and then somebody murders him and takes it from him. All kinds of throne games going on, one king after another. Each one, it seems, more wicked than the one that came before, until we get to a king named Ahab. And as soon as Ahab takes the throne, the story slows down a lot. That's where we find ourselves today. Ahab, it says, is more wicked than the kings even who came before him. And there are a couple reasons for this. Like Solomon, he marries a foreign princess who brings her god into Israel. This is Jezebel, princess of the Sidonians. She brings their god, Baal, into Israel. Ahab not only participates in the worship of this god, like Solomon did with his foreign wives, uh, but he actually builds places where Israel can worship this false god, Baal. And then Israel begins to engage in worship of Baal. So they are then kind of lingering between two gods and two blended religions, the worship of Yahweh, the Lord, their god, and the worship of Baal, who brought rain and storms and life. And this angered the Lord. At the same time, Ahab takes the commandments of the Lord and treats them flippantly. The Lord had said on the day when Jericho was conquered and destroyed, don't ever rebuild this city. Whoever rebuilds it lays the foundation at the cost of his firstborn son and sets up his gates at the cost of his youngest son. It's a stern warning not to rebuild it. Under Ahab's reign, Jericho is rebuilt, and the man who builds it even does so at the cost of his firstborn and youngest sons. So here is a man who is not taking the commandments of the Lord seriously, 
He is not taking the worship of the Lord seriously, and he has done more wickedness than all of the kings before him. That's the setup. Now, a man named Elijah enters the scene to set things right. And we read in chapter 17 what Elijah does. Let's read together. We'll start with verse 1. We'll read the whole thing. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe, in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went, and he did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook of Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and he said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first... Make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, and neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come to him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God 
and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The words of the Lord. Through this story, the Lord calls his people to worship only him. And here's how I pray the Lord uses it in all of our lives this morning. I pray the Lord will use this very story to expose to us any other God we may be worshiping or bowing to in any way or seeking life from in any way to then turn from those gods and worship only the Lord himself. Whether you are one of us or whether you're here as a visitor, I pray that is what the Lord does in your life this morning through this very story in 1 Kings 17. So the story, very simply, is that the prophet Elijah predicts a drought. We learn from the book of James, he actually prayed for the drought and the Lord answered it. And then during this drought, the Lord performs three miracles through Elijah. The first one, feeding him miraculously at the river. Uh, The second one being the jug and the jar that are never spent. And the third one being the resurrection of the widow's son. These all proclaim the very profound message and they show the Lord's superiority over the false god Baal. They're all designed very specifically to rebuke that false god. In order to see that, we need to know a little bit about Baalism and the religion from Sidon that was imported into Israel that they were then participating in. So let me give you a little primer on what it was like to worship Baal in that day. Now, the people of Israel worshiped the Lord God as the supreme God of the universe, and that tends to be how we in the West think of religion, right? One God over it all, we worship that one God, he's over everything. To most people in the ancient Near East, religion was not like that. It was a lot more like the Marvel movies that we watch on the screen, where there is this character who has this power, and that character who has that power, and then, oh, here comes another one we never knew about, and he's got this power, and they're all forming alliances and friendships and betraying each other, and all kinds of supernatural cosmic drama is going on, and we humans are just kind of the collateral damage in all of that story, right? There's no supreme God over it all. All these sort of miniature gods are just duking it out and having their wars and making babies and doing all kinds of weird stuff. And here we are just hoping it works out for us. That's pretty much a summary of ancient Near Eastern religion. In different parts of the Near East, they would worship different gods and believe in different versions of the story. And in Sidon, perhaps the most important god, although not the most powerful god, was Baal. They really cared about Baal. Not because he was all-powerful, he was not, and not because he could defeat other gods, he actually couldn't, he wasn't very powerful, but because he brought the storms, he was the storm god. And storms brought life and fertility because they brought rain, right? And so he was then to them the god of storms, rain, fertility, and life. When the storms came in from the sea and brought their rain and the rain brought forth the crops and the crops fed the livestock and the crops and livestock fed the babies, then we had growing crops and fat cows and fat babies and everybody is happy because Baal is doing his thing and bringing the storms in. So, hey, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate Baal. And they would gather together and worship Baal. But sometimes a more powerful God would come and defeat Baal. The main one that did this was another god named Mot. He was the god of death. And when he came, he was more powerful than Baal. So he would subdue Baal. 
they all would either be in captivity or dying or dead. And now the God of death reigns. So what happens? Well, no more storms because Baal is either dead or in captivity. And death and famine everywhere because the God of death is reigning now. So what are we going to do? Right now, Mod is here and he's more powerful than Baal. So their hope was that an even more powerful God named Anat, see how this is sounding like a Marvel movie, like more and more powerful gods just coming into the scene. Maybe this more powerful God named Anat will come, defeat Mott, chase Mott away, and free Baal and bring him back to life. Then the rains will come again and there will be life and fat cows and fat babies and everybody will be happy, right? So this is the cycle by which they explained the rainy and dry seasons in that part of the world and by which they explained the years of drought that would come. Uh, it was all based on whether Baal was free to do his thing or whether Mott was there subduing him. Back and forth, the cycle goes. So when the rains are coming, like they should, and everyone is celebrating Baal, and oh, Baal is doing his thing. Yay, let's have another celebrate, let's have another feast for Baal. And Elijah walks in to Ahab's throne room. Here is what he says. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. When he says that, he's saying a whole lot more than store your crops, there's going to be a drought. He's saying droughts don't come when Baal dies, and they don't come when Mott lives, and rain doesn't come when Baal lives. All of these things come because the Lord lives. You see how he's proclaiming the Lord's superiority over Baal through this drought. And that is where we find our first point this morning. I'm going to give you all three points at once this morning because they're all connected, and I don't want you to isolate one away from the other. Our first point this morning is that only the Lord is in charge. Only the Lord is in charge. Two points later will be only the Lord gives life, and only the Lord is worthy of your worship. Let's talk about his authority, him being in charge. What Elijah is saying is that droughts come when the Lord says they come. And rain comes when the Lord says it comes. And that means for us that global pandemics come when the Lord says they come. And the numbers go up when the Lord says they go up, and the numbers go down when the Lord says that they go down, because he alone is in charge. It means that the stock market goes up and goes down when the Lord says it goes up and it goes down. It means that nations like China and Afghanistan rise and fall when the Lord says they rise and when the Lord says that they fall because the Lord alone is in charge. We see this on the very first page of the Bible when everything that is created is created because God speaks it into being, right? There is light for one reason, because God said, let there be light, and there was light. There is life because God said, let there be birds and let there be fish and let there be this and let there be that. All these things are there because God said with the power of his word that they should be and that they must be. And so they are. So the Lord alone is in charge. The Lord alone has authority over everything. And that's the very first thing Elijah means to say with this miracle and with these words and with this announcement. <clears throat> 
Now, that means something very profound for us because we can read our New Testaments. Elijah didn't have a New Testament, but we do. And so we learned from the New Testament that we can call this Lord, Yahweh, by the name Jesus. The New Testament uses the words the Lord to refer to Jesus many, many times, right? If you read your New Testament a lot, you can think of phrases like Jesus our Lord or the Lord Jesus or just the Lord in reference to Jesus many, many times. But why would the New Testament writers do that? They are saying very intentionally that Yahweh of the Old Testament, the Lord of the Old Testament is Jesus in the New Testament, We see this also in the way Jesus conducts himself and the things that he says, right? He says in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, right? So if if in the Old Testament we could say the Lord is in charge, in the New Testament we can say Jesus is in charge, right? All authority has been given to him because he is the Lord. He demonstrated this even over the storms when he stood up in a boat And he rebuked the winds and the waves, and they stopped. And everyone around said, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? What's the point of that? The point of that is that Jesus is in charge. He is the Lord. He's the same Lord that shows his superiority over Baal here in this story and shows to us his superiority over all of our false gods. So the Lord is Jesus. Who are the false gods of our age that Jesus would declare his superiority over? Well, there are many, but I'll point out just just two this morning. Here in the West, uh, probably the most prominent religion and the most well-developed religion is what I would call worship of the self, worship of your true self. Uh, You have probably heard some ideology spouted out there that has encouraged you to find your true self inside of you and basically do whatever it says, right? Uh, You can think of Elsa, all right, standing in her ice castle singing, let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore. What is she letting go? That inner self, right? The real me is coming out in my new white gown and my new ice palace that I am building up. Here's the real me and it's in charge. I'm going to let it go. Or you can think of uh, Casey Musgrave singing uh, Kiss Lots of Boys or Kiss Lots of Girls, if that's what you're into. Follow your arrow wherever it leads. Right? What's she saying? She's saying, in you, there's an arrow, right? And wherever it points, you just go and do what it says. Or you can think of the mantras of our world today. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. Be true to yourself. These these are all ways of taking this uh, real, authentic inner you that lives inside of you, and if we're really honest, making it a God, making it in charge. Whatever's in there, right? Do what it wants, even if that's different from what it wanted yesterday. Obey that inner self. Do what it says wear whatever clothes it feels like you should wear, whatever messages are in there, get them tattooed on yourself and do your hair that way, do everything according to your inner self. And if someone would come along and oppose your inner self and say, actually, you shouldn't do that, you need to oppose them with a religious zeal, right? Because they have committed sacrilege. They have violated your inner self. Is this not making a God 
out of our inner true self. That's the modern religion that we swim in. Every time we hear, follow your dreams, follow your heart, that's what we're hearing, the mantras of the world. And so if Elijah would walk in the throne room and say, this false god of Baal is not in charge, the Lord is in charge, what do we need to hear today? We need to hear that the false god of our inner self is not in charge. Jesus is in charge. Only he has power and authority over our lives, which means we must look to him and obey him. So that means taking a mantra of the world and turning it on its head, right? The world would say, be true to yourself. What must a Christian say? Be true to Jesus. He alone is in charge. Now, if we live like that, if Jesus alone is in charge of our lives and our dreams and our heart are taking, you know, a very low place under him, that's going to affect our lives in a number of ways. Uh, Many of you are in a position where you are either looking for a job or wondering what you're going to do with the next decade of your life. Some of you freshly graduated from college, others freshly retired, others of you moving from one job to another. Several seasons in life where we sit back and we think, what am I going to do with the next decade, right? What should I do? Now, if we are following the world's religion, we're going to look in our heart and say, what are my dreams? I'm, I'm obligated to go and follow those dreams, right? At any cost to myself and anyone else. That's the first priority in the world's religion. But if Jesus is in charge, it's a different set of questions that we start with. How can I love God and love others with the next 10 years of my life? Is there anybody God has put in my life that I'm responsible to and to care for? How can I love them better with the next 10 years of my life? Any skills that God has given me that I could love others with and perhaps use in the workforce to bless others? These are different priorities, aren't they? This is not follow my dreams. This is love the Lord my God and love others. And if you follow that trail, that could lead to the same career path as before. It could lead to a different one. Would at least lead to a different perspective in that career path. Others of us perhaps are struggling with some of the identity issues that the world kind of asks us to question. Uh, You know, I have a male body or I have a female body, but on the inside, what am I really? Am I really a man or a woman or do I not fit the binary construct? And uh, who am I supposed to be attracted to? And what am I supposed to be, right? And the world would say, look in your heart and rebuke anyone who tries to tell you that your heart is wrong. Well, if we take the mantra and turn it on its head, and we say, no, we're not true to ourselves, we are true to Jesus. That means starting with a different set of questions when we ask questions like that. That means looking to the Lord Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm not in charge of my life, you are in charge of my life. My body doesn't belong to me, it belongs to you, and you're you're better than me, so I want it to belong to you. So, what did you make me to be? How did you design my body to work? And what do you want for my life? And that can send you down a very different road. So as Elijah says, the Lord is in charge, Baal is not. I believe the Spirit wants us to remember this morning, Jesus is in charge and our inner selves are not. There is another religion in the world today that is small but is growing. And when I start talking about it, some of you are going to think, why on earth is he talking about that of all things? But here we go. 
there is a growing interest in what I would call spiritual dabbling, which by that I just mean any kind of spiritual activity other than the worship of Jesus. Anything from tarot cards to horoscopes to a serious yoga class that takes the spiritual side of yoga seriously. Not all of them do that. Uh, witchcraft, Wicca, wizardry, I- any of it. All of these are really attempts to connect with a spiritual world, have some kind of relationship with it, and maybe even seize some of its power for our benefit. Now, you may be thinking, who who actually does that? Are there any real witches anymore? And the answer is actually more and more people every day. Um, The the official religion of witchcraft is called Wicca. Uh, They spell magic with a K and have a number of, uh, you know, kind of constructs that they have built. In 1990, there were 8,000 people that were kind of registered followers of Wicca. In 2010, there were 320,000. The number had grown that much. And today, we we estimate, because the 2020 number hasn't come back yet, but we think it's about one and a half million registered Wiccans today. So more and more people every day are turning to other spiritual things to find some sense of connection. A lot of reasons for that. The main one is that our hearts were not wired to not worship anything. We always want to seek out spiritual reality. We're going to look for something, and so people are grabbing for whatever we can. And the scary thing is that some of this stuff works. I knew a woman once who, uh, she went to church on Sunday, and her father had died, and so then other days of the week, she would go and visit a medium And I asked her, why on earth are you doing that? And she said, well, because it works, and I miss my dad, and I want to talk to him. It works for some people. Or I knew a pastor once, actually a a teacher of pastors in Ecuador, uh, who was working with a man who I think was a pastor. And in Ecuador, one of the traditions there, part of their uh, religion there, is if you have health problems, especially heart problems, Uh, The cure, the spirits will help cure you if you drink the blood of a black dog. And it's very hard to find an all-black dog in Ecuador for that very reason. They're snatched up very quickly for for their healing powers. Uh, This man, I think he was a pastor in the church. If not, he was a leader one way or another. And my friend was just urging him because he had heart problems and had heart disease and said, just don't, don't do that. Look to the Lord for healing. Don't look to that for healing. Uh, The man did not listen to him. He found a black dog. He drank the blood of the black dog. And here's the crazy thing. It cured him of heart disease. My friend was like, what do I do with that? What what do I tell him? So this this stuff has like real spiritual power to it. What does the Lord have to say about that? Well, Here, he would say something very plain. Uh, I'll use Job 1 to illustrate it, though. Some of you are familiar with the story of the book of Job. Uh, Satan means to strike Job, doesn't he? But he can't do it without going before the Lord and saying, I want to strike your servant Job. And the Lord says the first time, okay, you can take his stuff, but you can't touch his body. He gives limits. And with that permission, then Satan goes and he destroys everything that Job has, but doesn't touch his body. Satan comes back to the Lord, says, now I want to strike his body. Can I kill him? And the Lord says, you can strike his health, but you cannot kill him. You cannot take his life. And so he goes, and within the boundaries that the Lord gives him, he strikes Job's health, but does not kill him. 
One of the points here is that Satan has real power. He is the prince of the powers of this world, the New Testament says, but he is in complete submission to the Lord. He cannot do anything without the permission of God. What does that mean for some of the deceitful, dark, spiritual powers that people are seeking? It means there might really be something there. It doesn't work to tell them that it's not real and it's not working because they know better. But it cannot work one ounce better than the Lord in heaven gives permission for Satan to do. Satan cannot do anything. None of his minions can do anything without the Lord's permission. Why is that? Because the Lord alone is in charge. That's what Elijah would say here. He would say, look, guys, Baal may be working a little bit for you guys, but the Lord alone is in charge. And so if anyone here today has ever been tempted to dabble in those kind of things, or maybe if you know someone who has, uh, I want to speak both sides of the Scripture's message here very clearly. On one hand, uh, the Bible condemns any attempts to connect with the spiritual realm apart from the worship of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can we worship and try to connect with in that way. Sometimes he sends angels or somebody to talk to us, but we don't seek them, right? So that means all of that activity is condemned in the Bible. But the Bible offers you something better. It offers you a real relationship, not with some eighth level spirit, but with the true sovereign king of every spiritual power. The one to whom they all submit reaches his hand out to you and says, come follow me. Come be one of my children. And that is better than anything that a drug trip connecting you to the spiritual world or the inner balance of a yoga class or any spell could ever give you a real relationship with the sovereign king over every spiritual power. That's our first point this morning. The Lord alone is in charge. For the second point we look to the miracles that Elijah performs next. The story goes like this. Uh, Now there's a drought, and so everyone's looking for food and water. But the Lord guides Elijah and says, go to this brook at Kareth, which is in the Jordan River, and there you'll find water. Uh, Only one problem, there's no food anywhere around there. It's in the wilderness. And so he says, I will command the ravens to come and bring you bread and meat. So here he is now in the brook, and the Lord is through ravens. They're just, I guess, bringing steaks to him, and he's just eating, eating and drinking at the Lord's provision. And the idea there is that the Lord alone gives life, right? In, in, in a season of drought, it's one thing to say the Lord's in charge, but if there's no water, no crops, no livestock, and nothing to eat— People are going to say, okay, that's great, but how am I going to live, right? The Lord's in charge, but I need to eat. What do I do? And the Lord meets that concern here and says, look, I fed my prophet because I give life. The story goes on. At this point, uh, Elijah is on the east side of Israel. And the Lord says, next, go up to Sidon, which means he had to go back into Israel in kind of an L shape and then go up to Sidon. That's significant because Sidon is Baal's home turf, right? That's where Jezebel came from. So 
now the Lord is, so to speak, not in a home game, but in an away game. He's in Baal's territory. And Elijah meets a widow there who the Lord has told provide for this man. And she follows the voice of the Lord, treats him like a man of God. She says to him early on, as the Lord you worship lives. So she trusts this Lord and is listening to him. The Lord provides miraculously. They are down to their last handful of flour and last little bit of oil. They plan to eat it and then have no more food and die. And in faith, she offers something to Elijah to eat when she has nothing for herself. And the Lord rewards that faith and makes sure that the flour and the oil never go dry for the rest of the drought. She just keeps pouring oil from the jar and it keeps pouring. She keeps pouring flour and the flour just keeps going. The Lord is saying the same thing. I am the one who gives life. Except this time he's kind of raised the stakes a little bit. Now it's not just I'm the one who gives life in Israel and I'm the one who gives life to my people. He says, I'm the one who gives life even in Baal's territory, even where he is. And I'm the one who gives life even to the Sidonians, not just to Israel. So in this way, the Lord proclaims his superiority over Baal, even to the Sidonians. Baal cannot provide for you. He cannot give you life. I can, and I do. He will raise the intensity even more and do something that was probably not even on the radar Something that no one looked to Baal for, but he did it anyway. The widow's son becomes ill and dies. And she weeps and she questions Elijah, what what have you done here? And the Lord, through Elijah, raises the boy from the dead. Baal never even claimed he could do that, much less did he actually follow through and do something like that. So now the Lord is saying even louder, I alone give life, not just to the living, but to the dead, I give life. And so that brings us to our second point, which I've already hinted at several times, only the Lord gives life. That's the second thing Elijah means to say in his work here. God is the source of all life. In Genesis 1, the animals got their life and breath because the Lord breathed life into them. Humans got our life and our breath because the Lord breathed life into us. And he sustains life in the way that Baal claims to you. Let me, let me read to you Psalm 104. I'm just going to read verses 10 through 16. This is all of the stuff that Baal claims to do, but it is the Lord that does it. He says, you make the springs gush forth in the valleys. As they flow between the hills, they give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Who is it that gives all this stuff? Who brings the rain? Who makes the crops grow? Who brings the harvest? Who gives to us life? The Lord does all of it. It is the Lord alone who gives life. The New Testament makes very clear that Jesus, being the Lord, is our source of life. You may have read the book of John, and you may have noticed the frequency with which the word life appears in the book of John. 
Jesus is associated with life so many times, even in verses that we like to memorize. Uh, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting, what? Life, everlasting life. John 1, uh, in him was life, and that life was light of man. Over and over and over through the gospel of John, we hear Jesus is life. He is the source of life. He alone gives life. And so an Old Testament Israelite should say the Lord alone gives life. With our New Testaments, we must say Jesus Christ alone gives life. He is the Lord, and he is the one who gives life. He proved this when he rose from the dead himself, right? Who can give life but the one who rose from the dead on the power of God alone, right? And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies... He will live. That's a, that's a promise. For those of us that believe in Jesus, his resurrection is just one of many, right? It guarantees for us. It's a promise for us. Resurrection from the dead. And I know of no other God who promises resurrection to their people. Only Jesus even promises that. And only Jesus can fulfill something like that. Only Jesus gives life. That means something for those of us who are following the false god of our inner selves, doesn't it? Uh, We were talking in Sunday school this morning about how often, uh, and they had lots of examples, the students there did, uh, how often following your heart and following your dreams just leads to sadness and sorrow and despair. Uh, So many people chase their dreams and wind up miserable. And Ecclesiastes teaches us to expect that. In Ecclesiastes 2, the sage seeks after all of his own desires, and he's the wisest, most powerful man in the world, so he gets them all. I think the sage is Solomon. He gets everything he sets his heart on, and he says, every time it's just meaningless and gives me no happiness. Why would that be? Well, that's because your inner self, your desires, are a terrible God to follow. You don't make a good God. Only Jesus does. Why would it be that as our culture more and more encourages people to follow their hearts and follow their dreams that our entertainment, our TV shows would become so dark as they have become and our music would become so dark as it has become and Halloween becomes like so dark and I mean some of it's just fun bats and stuff but some of it's like, ooh, that is spooky, that is dark. Why why would things become so dark in a culture that's following its heart and following its dreams? Because our hearts make tyrannical gods. Have you ever woken up in the morning and felt like you were awesome? Like your heart telling you, I'm cool, I'm awesome, man, yeah, I'm gonna go do it today. And within an hour, felt like the trash of the earth. Has your heart ever turned on you like that? I don't know, mine has. Why would our hearts do that? Why would following our heart make us think one minute we're the king of the earth entitled to everything and another minute worthless because our hearts are tyrannical gods they enslave us and harm us on the other hand jesus christ gives life how many followers of jesus have been suffering so deeply 
and can say, I still have this hope and this joy. Why can we say that? Because we have a good God and we're not following our tyrannical hearts. You might say, though, I mean, some people follow their hearts and live fulfilled lives for a time. And so you might say, hey, I'm, I'm following my heart and doing everything I want to do, and I'm having a good time. So that's not true of me. You said something that's not true. Well, let me say this. I think we could probably agree that you do not expect your inner self to ever raise you from the dead. Now, all of us who live for ourselves, we do so knowing that we're going to die one day. And I think we probably agree on that. And that is why what Jesus offers you is so much better. Following yourself leads inevitably to death. There's no argument against that, right? Following Jesus leads to resurrection. And so what Jesus stretches out with his hand to you is so much better than what following your heart can give you. A life of joy following him in much and in little and resurrection at his return. This is so much better than a miserable life trying to follow our inconsistent hearts this way and that until we die and are done. Choose before you life and death. Follow Jesus Christ who alone gives life. We would say this same message to anyone who would seek any of those false and dark forms of spirituality that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Anyone who is trying to, you know, you know, gather around a real cauldron with a real spell book and trying to gain power from that. Uh, anyone who is going to a serious yoga class that's taking the Hindu spiritual side of it seriously. I realize there are some of those classes that it's just exercise, but some of them are serious spiritual stuff. Uh, anyone who's doing any of that, I don't think any of them would say, I expect to live forever because of this activity I'm doing, right? It doesn't even promise that. It just gives you temporary maybe whatever you're looking for. Jesus offers you something better. He offers you eternal life to live forever with him in a resurrected body in his world, in his kingdom that he will set up. And so when he calls you to turn from those things and follow him, he's calling you to life. He's calling you to live forever with him. That's our second point then, only the Lord gives life. The third point we look at today comes from the broader thrust of the section. There's not one particular verse that says this message, but really the whole thing, even chapter 16 and chapter 18 also say this. The thrust of the whole section is only the Lord is worthy of your worship. Worship only him. We see this in Ahab's fall into idolatry. It's when he starts worshiping idols that the Lord is angered. We see this later when Elijah will stand up in front of Israel and say, how long will you linger between two opinions? If Baal is God, serve him. If the Lord is God, then serve him. Right? We must pick which one we will serve. You don't get to dabble in both. You have to pick one or the other. The Lord wants our full allegiance. And so we gain from that our third point this morning. Only the Lord is worthy of your worship. As New Testament Christians, we can say, only Jesus Christ is worthy of your worship. That means then, if Jesus Christ is in charge over everything, and if only Jesus Christ gives life, and if only Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship, that means that we defraud him when we don't give him our worship. And especially when we give our worship to someone else. 
And so the final call for all of us is we must see Jesus as one to be worshiped. Now, he is good, and he gives much to his people. But he is first and foremost our Lord that we worship because he is worthy of it. That means for some of us, we must hear Jesus' words to repent and believe the gospel. Some of us have lived our whole lives for something else other than Jesus Christ. Have not worshiped him every moment from birth to death. Have not lived under his ways every moment from birth to death. And we see this now. Maybe the Spirit is even convicting you of that. You say, what do I do? How do I come back to this Lord and worship him? He has made a way for you to do this. Uh, The Lord has come to earth as a man named Jesus, who I have been talking about. Uh, He died to offer payment for the sins of all of his people. And for anyone who would trust in him, anyone who would, as he says, repent and believe the gospel, can find forgiveness for every sin and can find a restored and renewed relationship where we can worship him freely as we gather to do right now with no fear of condemnation or any form of punishment like this because of our sins against him. So my first call to you, anyone who has never repented and believed the gospel, turn from whatever you are worshiping. Worship Jesus alone and rest your faith in that gospel by which the Lord offers you salvation. For those of us who already are believers, uh, it means much for us as well. On one hand, the Spirit may be convicting us of some ways that we have worshipped the God of the inner self and tried to follow our inner selves in order to figure out what to do when we need to look to God to figure out what to do. In this part of the country, though, I think there is another thing we should look at and see. In, in, sub, in suburbs, especially conservative and religious suburbs, you see a lot of what is called religious consumerism, right? Christian, consumer Christianity, some people call it. Uh, This is the tendency to see church and religion as something I go to to get something out of, right? And so we might look at church and say, okay, at church I can find fellowship and friendships and maybe a good sermon and some good songs that I like, and so I will go to get those things. And then we look at prayer and say, okay, that would be a really good release valve for all of my anxiety, so I will go to prayer to relieve my anxiety. And we look at reading our Bible and say, sometimes that's interesting and sometimes it's not, so I'll do that like every other day. And then we look at maybe baptism or the Lord's Supper and say, I'll do that maybe, I, you know, I don't know. All of it based on what's going to serve me and what I want. Now, what I want to say is that that is not the Christian faith. Friends, that is a buffet. That is walking down the line and taking what looks good to your appetite. Now, don't mishear me here. All those good things that you get from going to church and praying and reading, they're all real, right? Following Jesus is good. But there is another side to this coin. Let's just take going to church. Going to church is good for you, right? Very good for you. So many good benefits you get from it. And if Jesus Christ is truly Lord over all creation, it's something we owe to him. And so we go to church first and foremost because Jesus is worthy of our worship. We go because we owe him our worship. Only when we do that do we get the benefit out of it. We pray to the Lord because he is worthy of our prayer and he commands us, ask me for what you need. Now, we get much good out of it in return, but we cannot neglect the other side. This is the Lord commands me to do this and he is worthy of it and so I do it. Being baptized is such a blessing. Those of you that haven't done it or have, I hope you know, it is just so, such a tremendous thing for your faith. So good, so good for you to do. So good for the church to see someone baptized. 
But that's not why we do it. We do it because the Lord commands us to do it. Take the Lord's Supper. We do it because he said, do this in remembrance of me. Consumer Christianity removes the worthiness of Jesus to be worshiped and just treats the good things we can get like a buffet. And so in this part of the country, that's the most likely trend that we would fall into. Treating the good aspects of religion as just something I can get something out of without seeing Jesus Christ as one who is worthy of my worship. So we look to the Lord today and we say, Lord Jesus, you are in charge. You give life and we will worship only you. Let's move now to prayer and let's just commit these things to the Lord.